Hi, this is Arnie Arneson, and this is Race Class. It also happens to be the Thursday edition of The Attitude, but it will go up separately as Race Class. And of course, as you know, we're recording on a very mournful Wednesday morning. Uh, I believe it's been two years since George Floyd. It is now talking about the mass murder in Texas. And the gentleman that's joining me actually joined me out of cycle last week because I asked Jonathan Feingold, a professor from Boston University Law School, to talk to me about the mass murder in Buffalo. Technically, this is Race Class, Episode 5. And let me introduce you to Race Class in case you haven't been following us in the past. Legislation restricting the teaching of race and racism in public schools and government entities have spread across the country. In an effort to respond, Boston University Law Professor Jonathan Feingold and Arnie Arneson of The Attitude are offering Race Class, a once-a-month course conversation where listeners can hear what it's like to approach race and racism from a place of curiosity and history rather than fear and anxiety. And as you so properly noted, Jonathan, we know race matters. Part of this project is to make sense of what that means. I know we have a lot on our plate for today for episode five, but we can't ignore the events of yesterday. And in this case, it was Tuesday, so they'll be hearing it on Thursday. And I can't believe um, you're on today because I grabbed you last week and we're talking about another mass murder. I'm shaking. I just thought we should at least touch a little bit on that and then get into the conversation about race class. Hi, Arnie. Uh, it's really nice to be with you in another, you know, tragically unbearable morning uh, here in the United States um, as we continue to learn more about what happened in Texas. And so this is race class and part of our commitment going into this series of 12 episodes was to both be responsive to what is happening in the world around us, but not to be overly reactive. So ideally, we can find a way to balance that, notwithstanding the stream of trauma that we have, we continue to um, have to endure the preventable acts of violence that continue to become more normal. And I think it is really important just to emphasize the preventable um, piece of this. There's so much that could be uh, said and dug into with respect to the relationship between race and racism and guns and America. We don't have the time to get deep into that now, but I did want to highlight one book by historian Carol Anderson uh, titled The Second, about the Second Amendment. And it's, it's a book that engages in a deeply powerful way how the Second Amendment has been consistently constructed. Uh, legally in our sort of collective imagination to divide, to deny, excuse me, basic rights to African-Americans. So I just wanted to flag that text, that book by Carol Anderson, and then spend, I don't know, three minutes or so talking about the difference between rights in form 
and rights in practice. It just, it's just a little, you know, we can think of it as a mini lesson, but one that I think will add a helpful, you know, dimension to all the important conversations happening right now with respect to race, racism, and guns. And then actually will provide a nice bridge into the focus for today's conversation. I told the students that I'm going to repeat it, that I was preparing for today and I saw this article from December of 2021. I posted it on my Facebook page and I posted it on Twitter. And this is how I framed it on Twitter. I was preparing for a monthly discussion entitled Race Class. We know race matters, a project to make sense of what that means. But this is where we need to go. Masks, vaccines, and critical race theory don't harm children. Guns do. And, they've been, and he, he wrote this piece in December of 2021, talking about all the parents that are coming to school board meetings that are talking about banning books and divisive concepts and getting critical race theory out of the classroom and all this focus about stuff that's not real but memorex. And then, of course, we see the tragedy of yesterday and we saw the tragedy the week before in Buffalo, and we're suddenly realizing that there has to be also a conversation about guns and the definition of Second Amendment and how, as you point out, how those rights have been interpreted. And you made a comment to me before you came on the air, and I want you to talk a little bit about the Second Amendment and whether those rights apply equally to all people or whether there's almost this sort of color coding. It's a really good question. Does Is there one Second Amendment in the United States, or there are multiple Second Amendments in the United States. And the way that I tend to think about this, again, is this distinction between rights in form and rights in practice. And so what do I mean by a right in form? Well, I mean that there is some law or some constitutional provision like the Second Amendment that grants a particular set of rights to, for example, individuals. And so you could imagine that there's either laws or constitutional provisions that provide a right to possess a gun in public. In form, this is a right that everyone should be able to enjoy on an equal basis. There's nothing in the law itself that says some people enjoy the right to possess guns more than other people. But in practice, there's never been equal enjoyment uh, in, in many things, particularly when it comes to um, guns and race. You know, among other factors, has always been highly determinative with respect to who can actually enjoy the formal rights that are contained in the Second Amendment. There's a lot of ways to sort of bear that out, um, in part given the interest of time. Also, you know, given that it today is, as you mentioned, Arnie, the two-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, I want to take two minutes to talk about Flano Castile, who is another black man who was yeah. um, killed by a police officer almost six years ago now, which is really hard to believe. For anyone who's unfamiliar with his story, the very, very short version of it is he was pulled over while driving during the day. An officer asked to see his license. Um, and, you know, within moments, the officer shot him and killed him. The officer's explanation was that he saw a gun. The officer saw a gun. The officer's attorney, their explanation was that the officer was quote unquote reacting to the actions of the driver. This has not, had nothing to do with race. This had everything to do with the presence of a gun. Flando Castile was legally entitled to possess that gun. 
He had a permit. In form, he enjoyed all these Second Amendment rights that we're talking about today. He had gone by the book. He had done everything right. In form, you know, he enjoys the Second Amendment. In practice, no amount of Second Amendment could protect him from that officer's bullet. (laughs) And for anyone to suggest that race had nothing to do with this, you know, is either misrepresenting facts or is just deeply misguided because it wasn't just, this was not the first encounter that Flano Castile had had with a police officer while driving. At least one report found that this was the 46th time, 46, like almost 50th, that he had been pulled over while driving almost always for minor traffic violations, which, you know, we could have another conversation about whether there is one Fourth Amendment for everyone uh, or multiple. But but so the lesson is this, and just a quick mini lesson before we try to jump into the main conversation for today. But there are at least two Second Amendments in the United States. And whether or not, or the one that you can access depends in large part on the racial category that, you know, your neighbor or the media or that police officer places you into. And so this is the bridge to our lesson today. So today, again, we're talking about race as a social construct. Specifically, I want to talk about gatekeeping rules. That is, the societal rules that determine which racial category a person falls into. But I'll pause and you know, invite you to um, come back in before we head there. But you know, like part of the work that I feel like you and I are trying to do here, notwithstanding this really unbearable, soul-crushing trauma that we continue to be living through is to do the work and engage in some basic training so that we are better positioned to respond to this world that we are in and actually prevent all of these preventable deaths. I want to get into class, but as you were talking, I had a memory and I need to share the memory real quick. I worked at 230 Park Avenue in New York City in 1975. There was a story that was told, and here's the story. There were four people on an elevator going up to the 15th floor. Two of them were black basketball players, very tall, very well-dressed, whatever, and they were going up to meet with their lawyer. And there were two other people, two white people there, carrying briefcases. One of the black basketball players reached into his vest to grab something. And the story goes, the two white men uh, on the elevator fell to the floor because they thought that he was looking for a gun. That was 1975, okay? That story went throughout the entire building immediately. Look what the understanding was. Was he going to get his Kleenex? Was he going to get his wallet? The assumption was, and they dropped to the floor, that he was going for a gun. I just want people to have that in the back of their head. So let's talk about your race class, episode five, because you want to talk about the social construction of race. Now, what do you mean by that? Yeah, and so Arnie, that story that you were just talking about, 
is a really nice segue into talking about race as a social construct. And when we talk about race as a social construct, really what we mean is that humans or society have created at least three different things. Uh, the categories, you know, whether that's black or white, uh, Asian, um, uh, what have you, whatever they are, the categories, also the meanings that we attach to those categories. And through, you know, centuries of propaganda, really, um, often in the mainstream media, and like you, like we've talked before about how there have been many mea culpas uh, over the past couple of years from, you know, institutions like the Baltimore Sun or the Los Angeles Times, just accounting for the ways in which they, through their reporting, sort of produced images of either whiteness or blackness, um, which is just all to say that another piece of the social construction of race are the meanings that we attach to these racial categories. Exactly. And what we know is that, you know, through time, this category of black has always or often or for many, for a long time been associated with uh, criminality. Now, that is the product of, you know, again, what we might think of as propaganda or a communications campaign, but then leads to real life stories um, like the one you described. Uh, and so race is a social construct, again, is that society, humans, we create the categories, we determine what they are. We create, we determine the meanings that are associated with those categories, and we determine, society determines the gatekeeping rules that determine who goes into which category. Because, you know, you have the categories, you have the meanings attached to them, and then you have to have some basis for determining who goes where. And so I'm going to ask you a question in a second, Arnie, but before I do, I just want to provide a little bit more historical context to, because this sort of notion that race is a social construct first emerged in response to the claim that race is biology. And because through most of US history, race and racial categories were presented through the sort of biological or scientific lens. That is that it's a, literally about your blood or your genes, and it's something that you inherit. Now. Initially, racial distinctions were less rigid than biology. Uh, it was conceived more through sort of framework of culture or religion. But that ultimately proved to be um, not all that helpful if your goal is to justify social hierarchy. Because if someone can assimilate into your culture or convert into your religion, and yet you're still trying to subordinate them through law, then the underlying rationale just doesn't hold up all that much. And so that led to a shift of talking about describing constructing race as if it were this biological, genetically inherited thing. And then you had a, a range of folks really through the mid 20th century who pushed back against that by revealing all the ways in which race is socially constructed. Now, today, I think, you know, who knows how much time, um, whether we'll be able to get through everything. But first, I want to talk about how elites create the rules, these gatekeeper rules, and then also how courts create or reinforce these rules. Um, but first, my question to you, because I think this is a question that often comes up. So to say that race is a co social construct, is that to say that race isn't real? How could you say that it's not? <laughs> I was listening to Sarah Silverman yesterday, and she was asked a question about race, and she said, well, actually, I look at everyone, and everyone I look at is white. That was her 
<laughs> that was Sarah Silverman's answer. So she didn't, she says, I don't see color. I just see white across the board. So everyone, that's a level playing field. So I guess the question then becomes, yes, there is such a thing as race, but is it about the meaning of the of race? Or is it, about, I mean, I don't even know how to answer that question, Jonathan. Part of race class is about identifying the questions where we know there's an answer to them, but you know we might struggle to answer them. And you exactly. and I both have talked about how there's many things in the world that society created or constructed, but we would never think of them as not real. You know, whether it's a hammer, whether it's currency, whether it's international borders, right. those are all social constructs, but we would never say they're not real in order to diminish their impact on the world that we live in. You know, let's pivot quickly to you know, our second act, which is really thinking about how elites created these gatekeeping rules in order to you know, maintain power and status. And we're gonna spend a little bit of time talking about antebellum Virginia. So I just wanna um, provide a quote from uh, Greg Blavsky, who I believe is a law professor these days at Stanford. And this is what you know he says, the survival of Virginia's economy and society came to depend on this caste system. Uh, for a muted class conflict between planters and poor whites, so that's sort of elite and poor whites, by uniting them as part of a quote-unquote common race of masters. And so again, gatekeeping rules serve a function that we've talked about before about um, using race and racism to create at least a perception of shared interest between the super elite, super wealthy, and, you know, otherwise, like, who we would think today is like, you know, poor working class folks who racially identify as whites. And so for purposes of understanding how elites create rules, just assume for me for a moment that there are only three racial categories. Assume that they are white, they're black, and American Indian. Mm -hmm. I know this isn't, you know, necessarily um, descriptively accurate, but it reflects pretty accurately antebellum United States. We might ask, why these categories? That's not the question that um, we're asking today. Today we're asking what determines who gets into which category? which category? And then part of the question is, well, why does it matter? Well, part of the reason it matters is because this is a society that is, it's a formerly white supremacist society, racial hierarchy drives it, and whiteness sits on top of that um, hierarchy. If you're white, you enjoy certain advantages. What might those advantages be? Well, one is a presumption about your status as being free or enslaved. Now, if you're black in this time, you are presumptively enslaved. If you're white, and then also if you're American Indian, presumptively free. So there will be a lot of fights over which category someone falls into. And if you want to increase the value of whiteness, what are you gonna do? Like anything else, you're gonna try to make it exclusive to increase, I don't know, uh, or decrease supply. So then the question is, how do you make whiteness an exclusive category? Part of it is through the rule of hypodescent, or what has come to be known as the quote unquote one drop rule. And that means that anyone who has any ancestor who was black or whose society would have deemed black, that means that that person through that single ancestor, through that single drop of blood is black. And so we can break this down into a little equation. Black plus white has child 
child is black. Now the key here, they're all like, Arnie, is that equation, is that a rule, is that some scientific biological premise? God, no. That, no, it's a, it's a, it's a political yeah. determination. It also, by sort of just the language of blood, reinforces the notion that these categories are biological and inheritable. Now, it turns out there's a different rule for American Indians, and we'll circle back to that um, in a moment, because I think it really helps to place in sharp relief how these mapping or gatekeeping rules serve the interests of elite uh, Americans of the time. One thing that's worth asking is, what are the social, economic, and political ramifications of the one-drop rule? Or in other words, if the goal is to maximize wealth and power for a few, how does the one-drop rule serve this purpose? And as my property law students from this past semester would know, hmm. it's all about property. Yes. So step one, recall presumptions about being freer enslaved. You're black, presumptively enslaved. You're white, presumptively free. Now then step two, so we're bringing in a bunch of rules of inheritance, legal rules. So law here is playing a, a big role. Now, generally, the right to property passes through the father. So whether or not you're going to inherit something passes, it's like, who is your father? Um, whether or, and then the status of enslaved passes through the mother. So whether or not you were born free or born saved is a function of your mother. And illegitimate children have no claim to a father's property. So children born out of wedlock, no claim to father's estate. And states such as Virginia have decriminalized sexual violence, including the rape of black women, in part because they were human property under law. And you also have anti-miscegenation laws that are barring black and white relations, which means that black men, or excuse me, white men could father either black or white children or children that society would see as either black or white, but white women could only have uh, white children. Right. Um, because they were legally prohibited from uh, interracial marriage. Blacks, right. Okay, so what is the upshot? White elites could ensure that their legal heirs remain socially identifiable as white and that enslaved women become a source of property and wealth production through sexual violence. Uh, and Cheryl Harris, who's a renowned critical race theorist, I think it encapsulates this really well with the following quote. The rule had a compelling economic logic. If a child of an enslaved woman inherited the status of the mother, then the supply of enslaved people could be continually replenished through the use of a black woman's body. And then all of this also is reinforcing biological notions of race. But the, the key, the upshot here is one reason why the rules that determine who gets into which category arise in the way that they do is because it serves the interests of an elite ruling class. And now in the final couple of minutes we have, I want to shift and just look at, okay, well, what about with American Indians? There was not a one-drop rule here. There's actually a requirement that you had more quote-unquote American Indian blood to qualify as American Indian as opposed to white. It's about property. Keep going. Yeah, it's, it's also. I know. I'm smiling. Property. Keep going. Go and on. so 
Virginia, for instance, has a rule requiring one sixteenth of American Indian blood, or you're considered white. Um, or in other words, even with some um, ancestors, uh, even if you're a descendant of someone who's an American Indian, you could still enjoy the racial advantages associated with whiteness, so long as you know you had quote unquote more white blood. And so the question is, why a different rule? Like, why not the one drop rule? And it's because it's a different context and there's different incentives. Now, first, many of Virginia's ruling class could trace their lineage to a union between an American Indian, Pocahontas, and European, John Rolfe. Which is to say that if you, like if you live in a formerly white supremacist society and you are sort of running that society, it's important that you construct rules such that you are considered white in that society. But there's also a second piece of this. Now, from the you know the colon American colonial project, there are different goals with respect to American Indians and people who have been imprisoned um, and taken to the United States, you know, shackles from Africa. When it, with respect to blacks, the goal is to exploit labor and bodies to produce wealth. You know, like slavery, like that system is just about wealth production through violence. Right. But with respect to American Indians, the goal is different. It's a goal of erasure and assimilation. Uh, and here, Addy Rolnick, um, who is uh, an expert on American Indian law, also a critical race theorist at University of at UNLV, she sums it up. The quote unquote Indian problem is how to eliminate Indian people in order to free up their lands for expanded white settlements and how to relieve the federal government of its obligation to pay annuities under Indian treaties. These laws ensure that interracial unions would over time result in fewer Indians, essentially trying to erase a people, providing assurances that these Pre-existing people would disappear. Now, the upshot again, societal elites are creating gatekeeping rules in ways that benefit them. And those rules are all about politics, nothing about biology. And on that note, this is one of the most fascinating conversations. I'm just sitting here going, oh, my God, oh, my God, of course, you know, a black is part of your wealth portfolio, you know, and you want to get rid of the concept of a Native American because you eventually want to sort of take over their ownership and their land and have them disappear. Oh, my God, Jonathan, thank you so much. This was a deep dive into race as a social construct. This is Race Class, Episode 5. Thank you so much for doing this. Once a month, we do race class. We started out because we talked about critical race theory, and I suddenly realized, what does that mean? And Jonathan Feingold, a professor at BU Law School, is helping us understand. Thank you so much for doing this, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Arnie. Take care. All you folks that you own my life You never made me sacrifice Demons there on my trail Standing at the cross rolls of a hill I look to the left, I look to the right Hands that grab me on the every side
The devil, you walking mad. 